You're listening to Rosie on the House. On this beautiful Arizona Saturday morning, welcome to Rosie on the House. If you're just joining us, this is the second hour of our weekly radio broadcast. Not all of our affiliates carry our new 7 o'clock hour yet, but this 8 o'clock hour we designate to outdoor living. And each Saturday of the month, we bring in a different specialist from agriculture, from arboriculture, from nursery and urban farming. And four times a year, we have this magic month where we have five Saturdays that we save for interesting interviews. And this Saturday, our topic was spawned off an article I read in Arizona Wildlife Views, which is a publication the Arizona Game and Fish puts out on a bi-monthly basis. It's a magazine you can subscribe to. And this was from September and October of this month. And it was Forging for Feasts, all about how uh, the native Indians survived on the native plants that grow right here in the desert. And I thought, well, you know, I have seen where people have fried the paddle of a prickly pear cactus and eat it. We've made prickly pear jelly ourselves. Um, I have licked Mormon tea out of curiosity, and I, uh, you know, I went right back to my traditional uh, iceberg lettuce after that. And it, it was a very interesting article. And we, for this Saturday, we brought one of the authors that was mentioned in the article, Carolyn Neathammer, who's written over 10 books on this topic of how people survived eating cactus, Mormon tea, sagebrush for thousands of years, things we don't even consider in our diet today. And we've got her on the line now joining us from Tucson. Welcome, Carolyn. And if you'd like to join the conversation, it's one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. You can text questions to 411-923 or email us at info at rosieonthehouse.com. Carolyn, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell us about the titles of the books you've published. Just run through them real quick. Well, all of my books have not been on edible wild plants, but uh, many of them have. The very first book I did was called uh, American Indian Food and Lore. It's been republished and retitled as American Indian Cooking. And in that one, I, well, I was just a kid, uh, and I traveled around uh, the arid southwest talking to Native Indian women about how they use the edible wild plants. It was more or less how their grandmothers used them. And because I did the work in the early 70s, that was a good time to do it because I talked to middle-aged women who remembered uh, uh, working and gathering with their grandmas. So that really took our knowledge back almost to the, the turn of the last century. Uh, so that was very interesting. Now, the recipes that in, are in there are pretty basic because they weren't, didn't have fancy cooking techniques, but it's interesting. And even if you didn't want to cook those uh, things, if you were taking a hike and you saw those plants, then it was more meaningful to you. You could say, oh, there's a mesquite tree. Well, we could use those uh, pods for, for food, and, and that sap made a good hair dye, and on and on. Later on, maybe seven or eight years later, I did another book called The Tumbleweed Gourmet, which was more modern recipes for uh, edible wild plants. 
then a few years went by, and I did a book called The Prickly Pear Cookbook. And that's all about various uses for both the fruits and the pads. I heard you in your introduction talk about the, the cooking of the pads. Then, more recently, uh, I've done a book called Cooking the Wild Southwest. And I bring that down to 23 edible wild plants that grow in Arizona that are easy to recognize. You're not going to poison yourself by confusing it with something else. They're easy to gather, and they taste good. So that pretty much covers that particular uh, part of my book writing. And in all of that research and in all the different books, has there ever been an edible application for just a plain creosote bush? Uh, a what bush? Creosote, the grease woods. You know, that's more of a medicinal. It tastes nasty. But there, there are. Uh, I am not an expert on medicinal uh, plants, but uh, that's uh, for somebody else. Uh, but creosote tea, I, I think that they use it for something, but that's not my line. Okay. Although I must say that uh, some of uh, the uh, young uh, um, cooks and chefs who are beginning to use edible wild plants in, like, the, the restaurants and so forth, will gather some of the flowers and sprinkle them uh, on, say, granola. I just interviewed a chef who did that recently. And some gather the tight buds and pickle them, and they're almost like a caper. Interesting. I, I was really just curious, not for medicinal reasons, but there's so many creosote when you get into the undisturbed uh, flatlands of, of the desert. What could we use? Yeah, it would be better if it tasted better, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> because it's so ubiquitous. But we got prickly pears, and so, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. We'll go through a couple of the ones you, you specialize in. You say you, there's 23 that people would recognize, and uh, for anyone that doesn't know the story, Phoenix was actually almost named Pumpkinville because when the travelers got here, it was, there were so many wild pumpkins just growing along the riverbed left over from the Indian tribes. Oh, interesting. Well, yes, of course, the agriculture that the Native Americans did in that area along the Gila before it was uh, uh, dammed up was pro profound. They, uh, there are stories about when these uh, soldiers from the Civil War came through, the uh, Native Americans uh, living along that, that area were able to supply them with uh, huge, huge amounts of pumpkins and melons and wheat, and uh, they were fabulous, fabulous farmers. It wasn't actually a wild plant. It was probably just, you know, the seeds left over from uh, pumpkins left behind because there were just so many. So what are some of the native ones? Uh, I'm, we've got the mesquite flower bean that I think our listeners of this hour are probably familiar with. You mentioned prickly pear. Well, if you start out in the early part of the, the year, there's the wild greens, and they'll come along stream beds or, or creeks. Um, 
early as late February, early March, and if you're taking a little hike along, you can look under the shelves uh, or the, the ledges, and they kind of grow in the in the shade. And then one of the next things are when the the prickly pear send out their their new pad. You can't just go out in the desert any old time and whack off a prickly pear pad and eat it because uh, once they get mature, they get that uh, inner uh, structure that's very woody. So it's only the brand new pads that can be gathered. And uh, it's better to do that Mexican kind that you tend to find in yards. You don't find them out on the desert desert. they're the tastiest, and they have many more fewer stickers. But everything is edible, and it just kind of depends on how hungry you are. <laughs> then uh, later on, next uh, will come uh, uh, saguaro fruits, of course. They were very, very important to the Indians uh, throughout southern Arizona. And as a matter of fact, they that was the beginning of their year, was the saguaro harvest. They would go out into the, the fields, leave their villages, and gather the uh, uh, saguaro fruits using the, the long pole. Some wine, just a little bit, and it wasn't very alcoholic. And they would dry the fruit and the seeds to use throughout the year. Uh, about that same time, of course, that was very difficult. It was really, really hot. And anybody who's lived during that part of a... Arizona summer knows you just can't wait for the the rains to come and cool it off. And so they did have a, a rain ceremony uh, that was involved with uh, the saguaro wine. And th- then that's next, a state about flower. the state time was, were the mesquite pods. And uh, let's see, it was probably maybe about 20 years ago Concurrently, several people got the idea that you could grind mesquite pods with a hammer mill, which is a very common piece of agricultural equipment, and make this fine uh, mesquite meal. Previous to that, I had honestly, I, I worked with a couple of Tohono O'odham women, and they were teaching me about mesquite uh, flour, and even then, I mean, there was hardly anybody, there were no Tohono O'odham even using mesquite meal because it was so doggone hard to to produce it. And nobody wants to grind with a matate anymore. But once we were able to get this beautiful mesquite meal with practically no effort, all you have to do is go gather them and then show up someplace where they're milling and uh, get your mesquite meal, it became uh, a lot more reasonable for people to use it and start inventing recipes with it. Then, then uh, after that, uh, come uh, late August, uh, September, October, we have uh, prickly pear fruits, which are it was so easy to gather. And, and Carolyn, uh, we're going to stop right there. We've got to come to a break. It's used, used in so many wonderful ways. We're going to come to a break real quick, Carolyn. We'll come back right after this. We're talking with Carolyn Neathammer. She's the author of The American Indian Cooking, 
And in it, she states that scientists estimate that the Sonoran Desert alone supplied indigenous people with close to 400 non-cultivated plants. More here with Carolyn at Rosie on the House. And the article from Arizona Wildlife Views on its, uh, the, the title, it starts on page 8 of the September-October edition. It's called Forging for Feasts, and it has a quote here by another one of the authors, John Slatery. Fill in the blank here, Gary. No other food has sustained the human race to such an extent as the blank. Potato chip. <laughs> acorn. <laughs> okay. Would right. you have guessed acorn? I don't know that I would have said acorn. No, but acorns can be planted to I think, create more trees. Yeah, it comes from a lot of different types of trees. You know, it doesn't have to come from a tree. So you got oaks and all kinds of mesquite pods. So we've got one of the authors in that article as well, Carolyn Neathammer of Tucson, Arizona, who's written over 10 books, joining us on the line. And as we were going to break, Carolyn, you were talking, uh, we, we were going through our Indian harvest and you'd brought us right up to August. So I'll just turn it back over to you and let you take it from there. First, let me interject John, that John Flattery's book is wonderful. He has uh, lots of pictures and he is a real expert, and he is uh, the one who really knows medicinal plants. So we'll have him back on to talk creosote. I, I certainly would send them to John Slattery's book. Actually, I have even blurbed it on that. So wonderful. Okay, so uh, now we come up to um, uh, the fall, and this is a, a time that you can get some. They're all cactus roots. Now, they're so nifty because, number one, they're easy to find. They're just at knee height, and they have no stickers. So you can uh, just pick them with your fingers. Uh, we uh, bring them home, cut them in half, and they're full of uh, nutritious little black seeds. And my husband is the bread baker in our family. So we gather them, and he puts them in his bread when he bakes them. Uh, another thing that shows up in the fall uh, are tiny little berries. There's a kind of berry that's very closely related to the goji berry, and they're red. And then there's also hackberries, which uh, these are on shrubs, and they show up in the fall, and they're little tiny orange uh, globes. And the thing is, you've got to get out there and get them before the birds do. That sort of rounds up our gathering year. And um, it's pretty much nothing until spring again. And um, that so, was uh, a time Native Americans were either um, relying on their stored food or sometimes just going hungry. And that was my next question about storing the food. How... When they're picking all these things in harvest, I mean, how long could they preserve some of these uh, items? Well, they sometimes they got wormy, and that was just part of it. The interesting thing about these barrel cactus fruits, which uh, uh, an ethnologist taught me recently, is that they can stay on the plant for a long time. So that was almost like a pantry or a refrigerator. They would leave those barrel cactus fruits there, staying fresh, 
Well, they ate up everything else. And then when, you know, the larder was empty, at least there were some barrel cactus fruits out there. Now, what's your personal favorite uh, native plant you've eaten? Well, I think prickly pear fruits are so easy to use. Uh, you know, the original thing was prickly pear jelly, which, eh, uh, it's okay. But I think there's vastly more interesting ways to use uh, prickly pear juice. Um, my, not to plug, but my prickly pear cookbook has lots and lots of ideas. Uh, there are some great recipes to use it as uh, a sauce for meats and, and fish. And then another one that's so easy to use is uh, mesquite meal. And that has a nice fruity caramel flavor, and it's so easy to put it in in pancakes or waffles or breads or cakes because the, the flavors are so amenable to being included in foods that we eat that are... are part of uh, our uh, menu rotation already. Now, we only have about 60 seconds here to left up. Can, can you use that one minute to tell us about the next book you're working on? Yes. About three years ago, Tucson was named a UNESCO World City of Gastronomy, and that includes 10,000 years of food history, starting with what we've just been talking about, then the introduction of corn, and it took them 1,500 years to re- figure out how to grow corn on up to today where your latest batch of young Turk chefs are beginning to incorporate some of these wild foods in their menus, and people are very excited about it. When so will that 10,000 one... years of food history in southern Arizona. And when we, can we expect to see that one? We're hoping to have it out for the 2020 Tucson Festival of Books. That would be March 2020. Well, we'll look forward to it there, and if uh, and we'll have you back on air talking about it when it's available. In the meantime, the book we uh, were talking about today was American Indian Cooking by Carolyn Neathammer. Uh, Carolyn, a website real quick for all your publications? Cneathammer.com. C-N-I-E-T-H-A-M-M. Carolyn Welcome back to Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition for the last 30 years. If you are just joining us, this is the 8 o'clock hour. This is one of those uh, random times of the year. We ended up with five Saturdays in a month, and we bring in special guests. And we're talking edibles this Hour at Rosie on the House, the beginning of the hour, it was all the edibles that the native uh, Indians and the Spanish explorers were eating over the last couple hundred years, a couple thousand years, <laughs> that uh, exactly. j- just grow native here in the desert. And this half hour, we're bringing in Farmer Greg talking about all the experimenting you've done and your fruit tree program and all the edibles that, uh, you know, when, when you, when you, Mormon tea's not enough, and you need a good old orange, or you brought us some more lemons this this Saturday. Oh man, I love a lemon. Nice? Uh, how to successfully grow and enjoy. One funny thing that I talk about was when they look at 
the native tribes and what likely happened mm-hmm. and the drought and everything. I always wonder if citrus had gotten here from Asia a couple hundred years earlier, how different would would, would the space have been? Would it have been? Would that have yeah. sustained a lot of the tribes around? It would have helped. Uh, it would so, have helped. But we have it now. There you go. <laughs> so how how do we get started? Let's talk about the the fruit tree program. First off, start off uh, edibles. What is your favorite? Gary and I were making a bet about that this week. What what do you think if Farmer Greg has a favorite that would be? I I, I didn't even know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't have a guess. Well, my favorite thing to plant is a fruit tree. Okay. Because you plant it once and it makes fruit for decades and decades. In mm-hmm. fact, I've lived I've lived and grown fruit trees here in the desert now for a little over forty years. And the lifespan of apples, peaches, apricots, plums, the stone fruit, the softer flesh fruits is about 25 years if you treat them really well. I have two citrus trees in my backyard that were planted in the 1930s. (laughs) And they're still thriving and making amazing fruit every year. So plant a fruit tree. (laughs) It got through the depression. It, wow. it got through the. There you go. That's a, that's a good tree. There you go. And how many wars? Yeah, <laughs> right, true. right. So, and my favorite fruits are the Caracara navel, mm. which is amazing. The gold nugget mandarin, the Trevita, Trevita um, orange is a really nice one. Those are all for us wintertime fruits, and then. My favorite soft fresh fruit is the desert gold peach, which ripens about mid-May, and the Katie apricot, which ripens also about mid-May, which is just amazing. So for the color alone, I would plant oh, five yeah. more peach trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and the caracaras make a really nice uh, Italian cocktail. Oh, make. there you go. Yeah, I have yeah. some friends that have a special recipe, and and when it comes to oranges, I said, "Well, I've just got this orange." He said, "No, make it a caracara." It's it, Big difference. There you go. Very good. There you go. So I don't think that recipe is on rosieonthehouse.com. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> you have to find producer Gary but, on. But let me look sources. just in case. <laughs> so a couple of decades ago, I had a couple of very interesting things happen in my life. So this was like 1998, 1999. That was the year I went back to college, by the way. Uh, and I wanted to plant some fruit trees here in town. In fact, I had made the decision, I take on epic goals in my life, I had made the decision that I was going to plant 500 fruit trees in central Phoenix. So I had a friend of mine who had a football field in his backyard, and he had already agreed to let me plant 100 fruit trees back there. And so my first year, I was going to plant 50 trees. I was going to start with 50 trees. And I went looking around at the nurseries, and none of them wanted to play with me. Sure, we'll sell you fruit trees, but they're all retail. I didn't want to play, pay retail for trees, so I started looking around, and I found Dave Wilson Nursery. Five is one thing. Five hundred. That. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, I've, I made some discoveries about that as well, um, but. So I I found Dave Wilson Nursery out of Northern California, and they said, "Sure, we'd be more than happy to sell you trees wholesale." Nice. You need to buy a hundred of them. <laughs> And you're going to do 50 the first year. And I was going to do 50 the first year. So my first year, 1999, I ended up buying 100 fruit trees and 
planted 50 of them in my buddy's backyard and I put the other some of the other ones at the urban farm and I put the rest in pots and then my friends started asking me well you know I'm interested in fruit trees from my yard what do I need to know and so that spun off the whole education program for me around the urban farm fruit tree program I call it the urban farm fruit tree education program and uh, in fact coming up in the next few weeks I have a couple of really important classes for you to take free online one's called so you want to plant a fruit tree and the other one is three ways to kill your fruit trees both are absolutely imperative that you take them if you want to grow really any trees here in the desert and what I discovered early on, you know, so like 2001, 2002, 2003, is that you could go into most nurseries and all of the big box stores here in town, and they would sell you a fruit tree that would never make fruit. And it's like, what are you doing? In fact, I even went into one of the big box stores um, maybe 10 years ago, and I said, you guys know that these fruit trees will never make fruit here. And one of the guys that was working there said, yeah, we know. Those are for people in Prescott. Because people in Prescott drive down to Maricopa County. All the time. To, to buy tr- <laughs> fruit trees. <laughs> right? <laughs> You've got Waters Garden Center. You've got Mortimer's Nursery. That's where people in Prescott go. <laughs> right. Go see them for your fruit trees up there. For here, but for here down in Phoenix, you need you know there's several things you need to know, and so you want to grow a fruit tree is my class that I actually started giving about 20 years ago in my living room at the Urban Farm, and it started back then. It started to cover the things that you needed to know, and back then what I knew for sure was this thing called chill hours. We get about 300 to 350 hours of chill, which is anything under 39 degrees. Most Fruit trees, not talking citrus here, we're talking apples, peaches, apricots, plums, um, figs, those kinds of the deciduous trees. They require a certain amount of chill hours in order to set fruit. And in fact, recently, I was in a nursery recently and they had some high chill trees, 600 hours. So if you plant a tree that requires 600 hours of chill, it's never going to make fruit. And that just frosted me. It was like, seriously, you've got to be kidding. So that's a big part of the reason I do my education. The other thing is the rootstocks. Rootstocks and getting your fruit tree on the right rootstock is really important. And um, one of my suppliers shared this with me a few years ago. And that is that, you know, one of the, the big box stores, they'll go to a tree grower and say, all right, we'll take a thousand of these particular trees, call it a peach tree on XYZ rootstock. And those thousand trees get split up all the way from Arizona to Washington state, you know, across the United States, wherever there's these stores are at. Well, that particular rootstock may do really great in Washington state, but it's going to die here. And so many. So the, those are the two big things that you need to know for sure. How many chill hours you got, and what's it, rootstock it's, is it on? And the cool thing is, is that I've already done that work for you in my fruit tree program. The only trees that we sell, unless we say this is an experimental tree, the only trees that we sell are ones that are going to thrive here. And that, so that I, I dig in deep in our um, So You Want to Grow a Fruit Tree, talking about that, talking about the different varieties that grow here. You know that apples grow here? You know this. 
I know Anna Apples grow great. Anna, I know Golden Dorset. Dorset, yes. Yep, those are the two. Those are the only two apple trees that I would plant here. And I planted more. Mm-hmm. The only ones I have left are Anna there and you go. Golden Dorset. There you go. <laughs> exactly. And a big piece of, and this is something I just discovered in the past three or four years, and that is that for fruit trees, the soft flesh fruit, deciduous trees that ripen after about July 10th. Too late. It's too late. The fruit just cooks on the trees. So all of the rest of the apples that are low chill, so they qualify for that, and apples will likely come here on the right rootstock, they're ripening in August, September, October, and the fruit is stunted. It's cooked on the tree. It's just, it's they don't work. There's no microclimate not an easy one. Not <laughs> an easy one. It's practical, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm now I'm not saying that you can't do it. You know, I've heard uh, urban rumors that cherries there's a cherry tree growing here in town, or that there's a you know a, a pink lady apple tree growing here in town. Um, I've actually grown Asian pears on my property. Pears are a no-no in my world uh, because they're highly susceptible to something called fire blight. Uh, but they, you know, they'll do okay if you get them started. And I had a really, really nice Asian pear in my front yard and lived there for about 10 years. And I got three to 10 pears a year. 15 feet over was an apple tree, an Anna apple tree, that I would get three to 400 pounds of apples. So you just have to make that decision. Is that something you want to want to deal with? And spend all that time and money and energy growing, or do you want a tree that you're gonna, you know, it's gonna be like a stellar tree? I've got one of those impractical things where we have a pistachio that they say is a really low chill hour under 500, and I thought, you know, I'll take the risk because every mm-hmm. 10, 12 years we get a hard freeze, and I wanted something deciduous, and I, this was coming off my pecan, mm-hmm. so it was already something that was gonna be on the same watering cycle, and it's a pretty tree. They've got nice big leaves. Um, it, nut trees, they take eight, 10 years to even start producing. So mm-hmm. I'm still a couple years away from seeing if, you know, they'll ever produce. And then those chill hours, you know, just cause they produce the shell doesn't mean there's going to be any fruit inside. So right. be curious to see. It's, It'll it's, be it's one of those. I had the room, I had the space. So I wanted to stay with the deciduous and, uh, the guy that was grafting them said, you know, I'd love to get one of these in Maricopa County to find out if, what if they work. I'm like, all yeah. right, let's So here, here's the thing. I talk to people about this all the time. I love to experiment. But experimenting is can be costly. Here's where it is. It's not just the cost of the tree. So if you go to a big box store and they sell you a cherry, don't buy it. But if they sell you a cherry, you take it home, you plant it, and you nurture it, and you water it, and you fertilize it, and you do everything you're supposed to do for two or three or four years, and it dies. Or you do, oh, this is a true story here. Um, It's 1989. I had just bought the urban farm, my house, and my ex-wife and I were at uh, Price Club, now Costco, and they had bare root peach trees for sale. And I bought one. I didn't know much better then, but I bought one, and we planted it, and 20 years later, I ended up taking it out. It never had made any fruit. Um, You know, it was probably, you know, a high-chill tree. Um, And I have after the break, I have an interesting story to tell you about 
a peach at one of the big box stores. So, so how many pounds could you have produced in that same spot if it had been a producing tree? Exactly. And that's where so it costs. So if you are going to experiment, know that it's an experiment, and there's and then it's costly. Gosh, Price Club. I forgot they used to be called Price Club. That's a blast from the past. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I remember the the one time I bought gas under a dollar was from Price Club, right after I got my license, and wow. then shortly after. It was it was up over a dollar and it, it, it hasn't never gone backwards. <laughs> we're talking with Farmer Greg and uh, we are talking about the fruit tree program, but I'm going to make you talk about your mesquite. Right in the middle of a conversation with Farmer Greg and the fruit tree program. You were going to tell us a peach story just before we oh, went to the break? Yeah, the big box store. I, you know, I, I occasionally go into big box stores, and I always walk through the nurseries. Now, do you know that there are hundreds, let's say hundreds, of different varieties of peaches? Some will grow here. There's about a dozen varieties that do really well here in the low desert. Um, there's That leaves hundreds of them that won't ever do anything here. They'll either die or they just don't ever produce fruit or so on and so on. So I'm at this big box store, and I see this peach tree in a pot. And I walk up, and I look at the tag, and all the tag says is peach. It doesn't say the variety of the peach. It doesn't say chill hours. It doesn't it does, have a rootstock tag on it. It doesn't have a rootstock tag on it. Nothing. So, you know, I just laugh at that. Somebody's going to buy that, and, you know, it could be a, a peach tree that requires 800 hours of chill. Who knows? We just don't know. So, you, you know, you, you brought that up. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, all of our fruit trees have a rootstock tag on them and a fruiting tag on them. So it talks about the desert gold peach says this is a desert gold peach. It requires 250 hours of chill. It ripens in mid-May. And then there's the rootstock tag on it. Um, you know, these days with smartphones, it's really super easy to look up a rootstock if you're in, you know, for your area, does this rootstock work here? Or you can just come and see me. All of our trees are designed to thrive here. We bring in the ones that really work. And um, now's the time to place your your pre-orders. But in about two weeks, our nursery is going to be open. We have a 3,000 square foot uh, warehouse space that we use at 7th Street and Highland. And People that have pre-ordered their fruit trees or people that haven't pre-ordered their fruit trees and want to come and check out what we have, we're open there. And you can check urbanfarm.org for our availability of when we're going to be open on lot for you to come and get trees. Uh, and while you're at it on urbanfarm.org, please sign up for my two classes that are coming up. So you want to grow a fruit tree. It talks about rootstocks. It talks about chill hours. It talks about ripening times. It talks about which trees to pick for your yard here. Uh, and then three ways to kill your fruit trees is my other class. And that class came from the massive amount of pictures that I get from people saying, what am I doing wrong? And they've planted in gravel or they've planted in their lawn. Both you can do. You just have to set up a strategy for success for those trees. Um, and then there's the silver bullet of growing fruit trees that I discovered this year, which um, this particular one, 
this silver bullet, I think, is going to have 99% of the trees be successful from here on out that you plant. And with that, you're going to have to come into my Three Ways to Kill Your Fruit Trees class to find out exactly what that is. So you can pre-order your trees online. You can pre-order your trees online right now. Go to urbanfarm.org, and up, up in the top right, there's a, um, you know, there's a shopping cart. You can go there, pre-order your trees, or you can come down to our lot and see us. Now, you said your favorite plant to plant as a tree mm-hmm. because you plant it once and it produces over and over. Yes. Last week when we were you were on, we were talking about starting small. If you were going to plant just one tree, what would it, it be? Citrus, uh, apple, uh, peach. Uh, for me, if I had one choice for one tree to plant, it would be a desert gold peach. So y'all out there can't see this, but I'm standing up now and leaning over to the microphone. This is how you have to eat a desert gold peach when it's ripe. Because if you <laughs> the don't, juice. It, the juice explodes and it runs down the front of your shirt. This is the most incredible fruit that grows here in the desert. It's called a desert gold peach. It ripens mid-May. Uh, it is the tastiest peach. And I, here's what I can promise you. Once you eat a peach that you grew on a tree, you will never buy one in the grocery store again. These are all rootstocks. So just for somebody listening, if you come and you buy one now and you plant it, you're not going to have a huge pro- production this May. Right. So actually, you said rootstock. You meant bare root. Bare root. Yes. Yes, bare root. All of our trees are bare root. And the way that my fruit tree program is designed is that we do education starting September 1st all the way into January. People can take classes and come to events talking about fruit trees. Uh, And then the trees are delivered at the exact right time to plant them. All the nurseries here in town get their deciduous trees as bare root, and then they plant them in pots. And they get them at the same time that we get them. So in January, they'll be putting them in pots. So if you're buying one that's been in a pot for four months and you take it home and put it in the ground, uh, you know, a lot of the roots break off and, you know, it's, it's not the best way to plant. But if you get your trees from us in January, they're bare root. You're going to take them home. They're still dormant in January. You're going to plant them per our instructions. I got instructions for you on all that. And they're going to break dormancy where they're going to spend the rest of their life. They're going to thrive. They're going to do the, you know, really, really great there. It'll take two, three years for you to get a good production off that desert gold peach. Yeah, I tell people it takes about three years. Yeah, you definitely want to thin. First year you thin, you don't do it enough. The second year you don't do enough. The third, it takes about the fifth year for you, for most of us to really discipline ourselves to thin the way we need to, to get that good size production that we can enjoy. So you, you mentioned our mesquite bean mill. Yes. GrowPHX.com has a mesquite bean mill. It's about a $12,000 machine. Come down to the warehouse. It's it's at the fruit tree warehouse. You can come and see it, and we'll tell you all about it. And this is just native mesquite beans. Yep. Milled for, up, ground for, up for pancakes, and yep. you, you would use it just like you would use flour, all-purpose flour. Exactly. All right, Farmer Greg, it's urbanfarm.org. And for the fruit tree program, you can get the link right there, urbanfarm.org. On the front page is our list of classes and when we open and everything.